Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Olcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Molly West Duffy. She's the co-author of a book called No Hard Feelings, Emotions at Work and How They Help Us Succeed. So before we get into that, a couple of announcements from me. First is on the 20th of March, I'm doing a masterclass event in London. It's deliberately small, so there's only 25 places available. Still some tickets available. It's the 20th of March. It's at the Business Design Centre, which is in Islington, uh, right in the middle of the high street there, Upper Street in Angel. And um, if you want to, if you've been kind of meaning to get more into some of the stuff that's in my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, this is basically a one day blast through that. So we'll do the four key habits of productivity, capture and collect and organize and review and do. And there's a whole section where I'll talk to you about how to stop messing about on your phone, which is the new chapter of the book. And lots of other stuff too. And it's designed to be quite a small event so that there's plenty of time and space to ask questions. There's going to be some time in there where you're literally downloading the new apps you're going to use and all that sort of stuff on the day and doing lots of that kind of implementation stuff as we go. So March the 20th in London, you can get tickets. If you go to getbeyondbusy.com, we'll put the link in the show notes there. Um, But also you can go just onto the Eventbrite site and just type in my name and you'll find Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass there. You can buy tickets that way. So see you on the 20th of March if you're anywhere near London. Uh, Come and say hi. I've had a couple of people who've booked on it and I've said where did you find out about it? And they said, from the podcast. And I'm like, cool. It shows that there are listeners out there who've never contacted me before, uh, but are really engaged in what I'm doing. And I'm really grateful for that. So um, see you there if you're coming on the 20th of March and go and get your tickets if you haven't yet done so. Um, The other thing is to say that my new book with Colette Hennigan, Work Fuel, The Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition, is coming out soon. It's on the 7th of March. And Um, You can currently pre-order it. So you can pre-order it on Amazon. You can pre-order it on Hive. And again, we'll put the links to those in the show notes as well if you just want to go straight there. That's at getbeyondbusy.com. But yeah, we've been, like, to be honest, really blown away by the response we've had. We've been sending this out to bloggers and reviewers and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of uh, friends and family have uh, snapped up my... As an author, you get 10 copies. The publisher kind of gives you 10 copies. And I don't have any left. Like, (laughs) literally, they've all gone... And everyone that's been reading it is just coming back with such phenomenal feedback and saying, I've changed this and I'm doing this now and I've got more energy and it's really having an effect. So I can't wait to just kind of share this with the wider world and just have this out there in the world. It feels to me like I'm getting a bigger response to it than when I first released Productivity Ninja. So that really fills me with a lot of hope. I, I really have high hopes for the book, this book. and I think it's going to do really well. So um, yeah, I would love your help in spreading the word about Work Fuel, the Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition. If you know of places that Colette or myself or both of us can be on podcasts talking about it, or if you have some kind of blog and you want to review the book or whatever, just get in touch with me, graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Got some great publicity stuff lined up already, but would love to get some more. So um, if you know of ways that you can help me spread the word on WorkFuel, let me know. That'd be great. Cool. Let's get into the episode. So this is Molly West Duffy, co-author of No Hard Feelings, Emotions at Work and How They Help Us Succeed. And we had a really wide-ranging chat, really good. Um, So talking about decision-making and teams and leadership and culture and all of these things in relation to how we be more human at work, how we bring our emotions into work, 
how we develop that EQ, that kind of emotional intelligence, and also how we bridge the right kind of line through that stuff rather than kind of going too far. Because if you're in a leadership role, you need to be what Molly West Duffy calls selectively vulnerable. And you need to be sharing certain things, but also like being mindful of what the the boundaries and the barriers are around this stuff as well. Um, It's a really great book. We talk also about the Instagram account that goes with the book, which I really encourage you to follow. So we talk about that during the episode as well. Um, But let's get into it. So this is down the line. Um, Molly was actually supposed to be in London. We were were due to do this in London and then she wasn't very well. So she ended up staying um, in the States and we did this down the line uh, using Zencaster. So um, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Molly West Duffy. I'm with Molly West Duffy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's great to have you. And your book has just come out um, just, I think, a, a week or so ago in the States and a couple of weeks ago um, here in the UK. Uh, it's called No Hard Feelings, Emotions at Work and How They Help Us Succeed. Um, so how does it feel to have your book out there in the world, finally. It feels great. It's so nice to finally connect with readers. Liz and I have been working on this for the past almost three years, so it's been a long time in the making, and it's great wow. to see people, see it resonating with people. And I always find that when you go out into the world with a thesis, you actually can have very deep conversations with people. So people you read a chapter or they see something on Instagram and then they immediately want to have conversations with me that are that are very deep, you know, I just considering that I just met them and and that's very rewarding for me. I'm somebody who likes to have deep conversations. So I've had a lot of good conversations about crying at work and making decisions and sense of belonging and lots of other things. Yeah, and I guess the topic itself lends itself to quite deep conversation and deep thinking, right? It does. It's something that uh, the topic is about emotions at work. And so it's about talking about these things that we don't normally talk about and um, trying to have a better understanding of our own emotions and how to harness them. And we're not saying that everyone should go around screaming and getting angry um, and understanding emotions of those around us so that we can work better on teams. So yeah, the, the goal is to get people talking about this on a on a deeper level within their own teams and within their own workplaces as well. Yeah, and your day job, if I'm, if you're, uh, I think I read on your bio is like, so you're an organizational designer at IDEO. Yes, that's right. So IDEO, we're a global design firm. We work with clients from all around the world, and traditionally we were a product design firm. We've now evolved to do. Um, more service design and I help our clients with anything internal so a lot of times to get a product to market they have to make changes to the way that they work and that could be a new team structure new talent new ways of working and so I I deal with a lot of emotions because change is hard um, but we do have to change a lot to evolve as people and as organizations I was just wondering what the relationship is between your work with IDEO and this book. So is the book like a pure side hustle or is it completely integrated into the work you do or is it like somewhere in the middle? Yeah, yeah, somewhere in the middle. It's uh, (laughs) something that started out as a side hustle, as you said. So Liz and I, my co-author and I were friends for many years and we were writing articles and she was illustrating them on the side. I'm somebody who... I just love to write the way that I process information is by writing it. Like if I really un- want to understand something, I'll, I'll write about it. And so working with Liz is amazing because I would do these articles and then she would get in to illustrate them. And the process of seeing her 
come up with an illustration about a paragraph that I just written was so fun because mm. her brain works completely differently than mine. And she just comes up with these very witty um, illustrations. And so we love doing that. And then the book came, um, she had an agent and the agent suggested we turn it into a book. And then as I started writing it, I realized that, yes, a lot of the things that I do with my clients have a lot to do with my learnings on emotion at work. And so I was open with IDEO about it and they were very supportive. And so there's a few mentions of IDEO in the book. I talk about a few of the things that we do as it relates to the book topic. Um, but other than that, it's been external to IDEO. Yeah. And there's a couple of stories I really love you to tell just in terms of the origin story. So the first mm. one is how you got into thinking about emotions at work and the importance of using emotional intelligence and EQ to, to regulate stress. And it started with you going to the doctors with a problem with your eye. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this happened when I was about 24. It was in my first, one of my first jobs out of college. And so to back up for a second, so I, I think like many of us started work thinking, okay, I need to be a professional, which means that there's no room for emotion at work. Mm. And I need to wear this suit of armor and button myself up before I go into work. And so a lot of your first couple of years are, are figuring out like, oh, actually, I'm still a human at work. And I still have these emotions, but I have never been taught how to deal with them. And I have no fluency in how to discuss them or manage them. And so a lot of us just suppress them. And so I had this thing happen where I had, uh, I went into work, I worked at a startup, it was very stressful. And I developed this numb patch over my right eyebrow. And I decided, you know, after a week or so of it not going away, that maybe I should go see a doctor. And the doctor asked me a few questions and said, you know, I, I think this is probably due to stress at your job. Are you stressed at your job? And I said, yes. And so I, as I was walking out of the doctor's office, I had this epiphany of like, oh, this is not normal. Like <laughs> to have, you know, these physical manifestations of stress. I need to do something about this. So um, anyways, I, I quit that job several months later, but I, from then on, was fascinated by how strong our emotions are and how they can affect these things physically in our body um, and how so often we don't give them any attention. And so that's what, and Liz had a sort of a similar experience. And so we just wanted to personally understand, like we wrote the book that we would want to read about, okay, so given that we're humans, what are emotions affecting at work? When should we pay attention to our emotions? When should we not pay attention to our emotions? Yeah. And it's so human and so relatable. And um, particularly the the way some of those things are illustrated. I, I think it's um, one of the most Instagram-friendly books I think I've ever come across. Like I'm yeah. following you guys on Instagram as well. Uh, we'll, we'll give everyone the link uh, at the end as well. But I think, yeah, just the ability to be able to bring out those different ideas through just witty little pictures and cartoons and different graphs and stuff I just think is really brilliant um, and speaking yeah. of which, so, you, so you first met Liz uh, through a platonic blind date yeah so we were we had a friend in common she had just moved to New York which is where I live at the time and we were set up on this friend date and we realized we had a lot in common we both have this sort of reverent sense of humor. We were interested in emotions at work. We both are very difficult sleepers and both have to wear an eye mask to go to sleep. We're both introverts. Like there was just a lot of commonalities. Um, and so, yeah, we started writing these articles together and um, I just really enjoyed the process of, of working with her. And 
to your point about the Instagram, I think what Liz does so well is she visualizes things that are hard to verbalize, like mm-hmm. emotions at work. And so that's the number one piece of feedback that we've gotten is like, this is a very approachable book. So even though the topic is sort of businessy or self-help, it's something that I think people who wouldn't necessarily read a book in either of those two categories might enjoy because there's just something so relatable about her cartoons. Yeah. And it's, it's very relatable and accessible. And by the same token, just stacked with research, like your, mm. uh, your sort of uh, further reading and bibliography pages at the back are just lists and lists and reams of uh, different studies <laughs> and articles and stuff like that. So um, some real um, strong insights in here as well. So should we jump in and talk about the new rules of emotion at work? Um, sure. And I particularly love the first one, which is something that I actually, was actually talking to uh, Paul Jarvis, who wrote a book called Company of One on the last podcast. Oh, yeah, it's a great book. Um, about this. And so he was talking about how you shouldn't follow your passion. And mm. your thing here is be less passionate about your job, which, again, is, I think, one of those things that goes against all of the the sort of standard business advice, isn't it? Like, you know, follow your passion. You've got to find something you're passionate about, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so be less passionate about your job. Tell us about that. Yeah. So when we were writing these new rules, one of the things that we realized was that a lot of the things that we found most helpful were actually counterintuitive to the things that you hear most often about work. Um, so be le- be less passionate about work is the first new rule. And that doesn't mean to stop caring about work. <laughs> it just means to care more about yourself. So carving out time for the people that you love, for exercising, for taking vacation when you need to, and fully getting offline and not being guilty about that. Um, and this is a really hard one, especially for the sort of millennial generation. There's been a bunch of articles about this recently. And we did a lot of thinking and digging as to like why this has become such a problem for especially the millennial generation. And I think there's two things. The first is that we have been raised to think that the only way to succeed is to never stop working. And um, if we, you know, briefly disconnect for a day, if we get off email, somehow we're going to derail our careers. And there's this catastrophizing cycle that happens of like, oh, well, if I don't respond to this email, then I won't get the client. And then if I don't get the client, I'll get fired. And suddenly we're like (laughs) out on the street corner five minutes later. Um, And the second is like, um, we think that our happiness is going to be the cause or be the result of achievement when really it's the other way around. And that if we're happier at work and we're calmer at work, we will achieve more. Um, so in the book, we talk about like, there's lots of different ways to to help with this stress. Um, the one that I find to be most helpful for myself is, um, to stop feeling bad about feeling bad. So there's this whole, especially in the States, there's this whole positivity paradox around, you know, come to work, be your best self. Um, you know, you're not allowed to have a bad day and, you know, some of that is fine and and healthy. A lot of that, though, is unattainable just because constant happiness is unattainable. Mm. And so if you have a less than perfect work life, it's okay. And, and you shouldn't beat yourself up over, like, not feeling great all the time. There was a bit in the book that I can't remember who it was uh, that you were referencing, but someone was saying that they were signing off conversations with people face-to-face with be happy. And then someone came yeah. up to them and said 
but actually that's making me more miserable to hear that I should be happy and I'm not. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was Liz's friend. And then they decided instead they should say, feel feelings. It's okay. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the stress aspect of this, so I think a lot of this, the narratives that we tell ourselves about essentially just wanting to be busy for the sake of feeling like we're working on the right thing, you know, often leads to this sense of stress. What are the, what are the sort of practical things that you've identified that people can do to just reduce their stress? What are some of the, so if someone's listening to this and they're feeling right now really stressed, what can they do like this evening or today that's just going to help to reduce that stress and kind of take away that sense of the world is burning. I have to be working on this right now. Yeah. So I think a lot of our stress now comes from the fact that we are constantly connected. So we have this to-do list in our pocket at all times. And the volume of email and Slack and text that we get is, is really overwhelming. So one thing that both Liz and I do that we found to be really helpful is to make a rule for ourselves to touch email once. So it's amazing the amount of stress that you have of like, you open up your inbox, you have all these unread messages, and then you like try to get through them, but you forget to come back to them. And it's just like, this sort of, um, it's weighing on you. And it's all this clutter in your brain. And so to do like, everyone talks about batching email, and I feel like that's easier said than done. But basically, the thing is, is until you're ready to respond to an email, like don't open it up. So yeah. if yeah. you're going to have some sense of what the email is based on who the sender is and what it's about. So like if you're sort of scrolling through on the train and you know that you can't really respond, don't open it until you can respond because that's just going to be weighing you down. Whereas you could be using that time to get other productive work done or to be thinking to yourself or meditating or whatever. Um, but I think we're just constantly sort of obsessing over these emails and stuff that we haven't gotten to yet. I also think with email, you know, I mean, obviously I'm a big fan of Inbox Zero and a big fan of batching emails and all of that. But I think the other thing that people don't often take into account, and I'd include myself in this, is actually the devices that we use for email matter. And the easiest mm. and best device to use is always the laptop or the kind of yeah. where you've got a bigger screen and the, where most people are going with a lot of their email is the phone, which is just smaller. You're hunched up. It's harder to open them. It's harder to, to really kind of engage with it more than just reading it and stressing about it and kind of doing really uh, unsatisfying finger typing back. Right? So like, it's actually just much better to just, if you can just take email off your phone completely or really have that as a kind of emergency last resort and do most of your email if possible, on a, on a laptop, I would say. Yeah, I love that. I, I think, and what I love about your saying, what you're saying is like, it provides a very clear rule. So yeah, one thing that I do is I only check email on Wi-Fi. So even if I'm on my phone, mm. like I'm not going to check it on the train, like, even though I can get a cell signal on the train, I, I don't have Wi-Fi when I'm commuting. So I just don't check it then. Now I can get it sometimes if I'm like, you know, in a waiting room or in a train station, that's totally fine. But that's just sort of my rule for myself. And it came out of this habit that I developed when I was trying to conserve data on my phone plan. And now I don't worry about that as much, but I still keep it as like this mental device. And that's been super helpful. I really like that. And I also think often when you're in Wi-Fi in a hotel or in a waiting room or on a train or whatever, 
there's that, you know, it might be 10 seconds, it might be three minutes of just annoying admin that you've got to do to sign up to the Wi-Fi, right, and get the password and all that. And it's almost like that becomes your ritual. It's like if it's worth doing that, then it's worth me. I'm now kind of ritualized into I've decided to do email as opposed to if you're just going to check one or two emails, you probably wouldn't go through that kind of pain point to get there. So it's quite a nice, I quite like the balance. Yeah, I had not thought about it. Like, you're so right. It is a choice that I make where I'm like, okay, I'm going to go and do this sign up. So I'm at least going to like read through eight or nine emails just to like know that I have the time. If I have two minutes, I'm not going to bother. Yeah. And so just on on, uh, that same uh, chapter and theme, there's a lovely phrase that you talk about, which is, Stop overestimating your importance. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So this is something that um, is really hard uh, for us to remember. Um, and I think, you know, there are people who are, of course, really important, like doctors. Um, but for a lot of us, we're not doing things that are life-changing or life or death. Um, and so it's just really easy to overestimate how important it is. Like, you know, we often think, oh, no one else at my company can do this while I'm away. Um, Well, that's probably not true. Uh, So (laughs) um, finding the time to go head home for a day to take vacation um, is is really important. And there's actually research that shows that if you focus more on those around you, you're going to have more compassion for those around you and what they're dealing with. And that actually helps you become more resilient. So it improves our immune responses. It reduces our stress levels. Um, So you can do this on a day-to-day level of just asking your colleagues like, hey, what's on your mind right now and how can I help? And that gets you out of your own to-do list and focusing on your own importance and just realizing that we all have a lot going on, um, which will make us all happier and healthier. Nice. I really like that. The other one I was talking to someone about the other day on another podcast was um, the idea of, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out. So if you think about you sat at your desk really worried about a thing, then if you imagine zooming out and you kind of see the room that you're in and you're just typing and then you zoom out again and it's kind of like, here is my town. And then you zoom out and it's like, here's my country or here's me kind of on this island or whatever. And then the final zoom out is just you kind of see the universe as here's the earth and here's me kind of spinning around on this speck of dust and with all these other planets and you just suddenly go oh none of this really matters that much. <laughs> so that's another way of just kind of thinking about the same thing yes i love that um so let's talk about a couple of these other rules then so um the third rule is emotion is part of the equation and i think this is something that again you know runs slightly counterintuitive to how you're taught you're supposed to behave in business so how can we help acknowledge that emotion is part of the equation yeah So this is our chapter on decision-making. And so, yeah, emotion is part of the equation. And our subtitle is why good decisions rely on examining your emotions. So we are taught that we are rational beings and that we should make decisions based on logic. And so much of the science, especially in like behavioral economics, is revealing that we are, in fact, very irrational. And we oftentimes don't make decisions based on logic. And so knowing that we are going to be basing our decisions on emotion, at least some of the time, we wanted to understand when should we be paying attention to emotions, which emotion should we be be paying attention to when we're making decisions. So there's two types of emotions. There's relevant and irrelevant emotions. So relevant emotions are things that 
are directly related to the decision at hand. So, um, for example, if you are thinking about asking for a promotion and the feeling of you have this feeling of like um, regret, if you're like, oh, I I didn't ask for it or I I have this sense of regret if I won't ask for it, that's an emotion that you can use of like, oh, I really want to do this. If you are feeling like tired and hungry or if you had an argument with your spouse earlier in the day and you come in frustrated, none of those, those are all real emotions that you're feeling. None of those pertain to some of the decisions that you might be making at work. And so we have to distinguish between the two. Um, In general, relevant emotions tend to last longer than irrelevant emotions. Mm. So um, the a great example of a relevant emotion we write about in the book is this emotion of envy. And we talked to Gretchen Rubin, who's the author of The Happiness Project, and she shared with us how when she was making the career transition from uh, being a lawyer to being a writer, she was reading all of these alumni magazines from her school and the people that she was most envious of were other writers. And she was not at all envious of people who had very distinguished law careers. And she realized that the writers had something that she wanted. And so what I think is interesting is envy is an emotion that we are oftentimes shamed of. And we are like, oh, we shouldn't pay attention to that. That's that's a bad feeling to have. But if we can actually stop doing these mental gymnastics around it and just feel it and acknowledge it for what it is, what it is then we can learn from it and hopefully use it to make a better decision. So envy is a sign, right? Like if you think about the you know, the, the, the things or the people that you're feeling envy towards, then that's a sign of this is the thing, this is the direction I need to go in. Right, exactly. And then irrelevant emotions, an example that I give in the book is, um, so, so often I get asked to go to after work drinks, like on Fridays and I really want to go in the morning and then by the time 6 p.m. rolls around, I'm like tired and hungry and I don't want to go. But I know that in the long term, going out and socializing with my colleagues will make me happier at work and, and a better collaborator and all of that. And so I have to disregard the feelings of being tired and hungry at 6 p.m. because they're sort of irrelevant to the decision. The other one I really liked was where you're talking about um, listening to your feelings is not the same as acting on your feelings as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Liz has this whole um, uh, decision-making checklist in the book, um, which is how she makes, I'm, I'm a little bit less good at this, but she's very good at making these decisions based on this checklist. And she talks about how like, always important to understand your emotions, but sometimes those emotions we shouldn't listen to. And that it's, it actually takes training to help you understand, distinguish your emotions, and then decide whether or not to act on them. We, we so often like skip that step when we're just like, okay, feeling, act on it, or suppress the feeling. Like there's nothing in between. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was also um, really interested in, so, so the next rule I wanted to talk about was psychological safety first. I just thought that was such a, a fascinating kind of concept and, you know, the idea of within cultures, how you can create that psychological safety for people. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is in our chapter on teams. And Google did this study a few years ago um, about what makes the best team. And what they found out was that the teams that had the most psychological safety 
And what that means is that people on the team feel they can suggest ideas and admit mistakes and take risks without being embarrassed by the group. And a lot of teams don't have this, especially in like really uh, competitive environments or places where um, or like with when you're new to a company, you can oftentimes lack this because you're like trying to understand what the group wants and you feel like you can't take risks. Um, and so psychological safety is super important. It also is um, a really good indicator of turnover. So people are going to leave jobs much faster if they don't feel some element of psychological safety. So some things we recommend in the book that you can do. Um, so the first is to... Um, like make it okay to have bad ideas. And this sounds sort of silly, but we actually do this sometimes at IDEA where we throw out purposely bad ideas or absurd ideas just to sort of break the ice, especially if we're working with clients and trying to show them like, it's okay, not everything's precious. Um, so modeling that. Um, the other thing is it really matters the language that you use. Language is really powerful. Um, so you, when you're, um, Asking questions, you want to make sure to do it in a way that's that encourages open discussion. So if you say something like, does anyone disagree? <laughs> like, it's going to be really hard for someone who disagrees to like raise their hand unless they have a lot of psychological safety. Mm. Um, but if you can say something like, okay, what are other thoughts? Or can you say more about that? That's, that's encouraging open discussion. Yeah. And I guess just... Uh, I, I love some of the. Ed, have you come across the Edward de Bono models on this? So he has like the six thinking hats, which is all about looking through different perspectives yeah. and kind of what's really positive about this and what's really negative about this. And let's look at this from a kind of data point of view and this kind of critical ways of thinking about it. And I, I think he has another one which I really like, which is uh, um, uh, plus, it's called PMI, plus, minus, or interesting. So you have each hmm. thing in the context of what are the plus points, what are the minus points, and what is just interesting. And I think uh, a lot of his thinking comes from this idea that in Western societies, and particularly as you were describing there, in kind of pressured environments that are very competitive, then it's all about I am right, therefore you are wrong. And he's really influenced by some of the more Eastern ways of thinking about how to run societies or politics, which is much more about let's all work together on an idea and just develop that idea rather than always throwing the baby out with the bathwater because if I'm right, then all of your stuff must be wrong and not taking any of the bits of your idea that might be good, right? Mm, I like that a lot. That's great, yeah. So, yeah, just kind of opening some of those questions up, I think, for me, is something that um, I think, like, within my company, we do a lot of that stuff, I think, very naturally around um, interrogate, interrogating ideas I'm not so sure we're as good when it comes to the sort of having the emotional conversations in terms of our own feeling and feelings. And that, of course, is a, a, a really key part of the psychological safety thing too, right? Yeah, it is. And, and I like that you made that distinction because I do think that there's that those are two very different things. And, and as an organization, you can be good at one and not the other. Um, I also think it's a cultural thing and, and we can get into more later when we, when we talk about culture, but um, there's definitely differences in countries of how comfortable people feel in sharing their emotions. Yeah. So there's a great book, um, The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer, which I really recommend anyone who works in a cross-cultural company to read, but she has this um, 
uh, two by two where she talks about um, whether people in different countries are, how emotionally expressive are they? Um, and then how open are they with like direct criticism? Um, and so it's been, been interesting because I've been doing a lot of podcasts in the UK as well. And I think this is something that comes up a lot where I just think the UK in general, people tend to not wear their emotions on their sleeve as much. And there is uh, a little bit more discomfort with openly expressing emotions really nice. um, in really the nice. society in general, but especially in the workplace, which isn't, you know, right or wrong. It's just something that I think um, probably UK organizations have to work even harder at because it's not going to feel natural. For sure. And you talk about, there's a couple of stories in the book, actually, just on that, where you tell stories of one is um, Howard Schultz from Starbucks. And the other one is the guy who used to be the head of HR at Google, Laszlo Bock. Yes. Yeah. And you talk about these instances where uh, both, of, both of those leaders are expressing their emotions, you know, very much front and center. So Howard Schultz actually cries in front of his employees on his first big speech back at Starbucks. And then um, Laszlo has a, a kind of family problem and, and comes to his team and says, hey, I just want you to, to know that this is what's going on in my life right now. And if I'm, I'm a bit less around, then that's kind of why. And, and I think those were both stories where I thought, well, that's really cool. And I think I would, I would like to think that we're all in my company really good at that and probably the same in, in Britain as a whole. I think I'd like to think that as a culture we do that. And, and then I question, actually, how often do we really do that and how often are we really uh, exposing that vulnerability as much as we, as much as we perhaps uh, could in a way that's really healthy? Yeah, yeah. Well, on, and on the leader thing, it's, um, it's something that I think – all countries are working on. I mean, it's definitely that we picked the rare examples that we could find for the book. I mean, there's, there's not that many examples of CEOs, especially male CEOs crying openly or being as open as Laszlo was um, about he had a family member um, who passed away. And so I think, though, that the world is changing and we will need leaders, both men and women to step into that. Um, and, um, we talk in the book about this idea of selective vulnerability and that leaders do have to think longer and harder about which emotions they express because people are looking at them much more closely than other people. Um, but if they don't express any emotions that increasingly leaders are going to be seen as inauthentic because like, how can you, you know, companies, for example, go through layoffs and then they have leaders who get up and like pretend like nothing's wrong. It's like, you're looking at them like, are you not a human? Like, this was a terrible thing that we just went through. I'd like to see you acknowledge some of that. Um, yeah. So I think especially in the last couple of decades, there's been this push towards, we would like to see you be a little bit authentic. And that doesn't mean to be um, not yourself. And that doesn't mean you need to go over the top, because if you go over the top, then that is a little bit, could be like a sign of weakness as a leader. Um but I think we're just we're only going to need more of that in the workplace. And it's a fine line, isn't it? Because that, you know, so you so so we need some vulnerability from leaders in order for that person to seem like a human. And there's there's a couple of politicians who in, here in the UK, who they're not like the big mm. name ones, but a couple of minister type level politicians who whenever I see them communicate, I just think put a shred of emotion in there like you can really sense 
you know, it, like I almost feel like a bit of revulsion towards their message because it just seems so unemotional mm. and so inauthentic. Yeah. And, then, and then I guess on the other side of that, there is this sense of you need to have confidence in a leader and you need to feel like they've got your back when times are tough. And if they're going to be so overly emotional that they're going to fall apart at the slightest thing happening, then that doesn't give me confidence, right? So how do you, like, what's the what's the sort of guide for making sure you end up in that safe middle ground there and, and for it to be, you know, both in terms of your own regulation of emotion and how much you display, like, what, what would you say are, are the kind of ways to try and tread that line as, as, as best as you can? Yeah. So I think the first thing is that we're probably all, if you think about it as a spectrum of not showing emotion to showing too much emotion, we're probably all further on the not showing enough emotion. So I think it's just, it's helpful to know like where the starting point is, it's not in the middle, <laughs> at least. Yeah. <laughs> so like we probably could all go towards a little bit more vulnerable side. Um, but yes, like you definitely don't want to do too much. So one rule of thumb is think about, okay, if my boss were to say this to me, how would I feel about this? Mm -hmm. Um, and even if you're the CEO, you know, you have, you, the board is your boss. So, you know, if a board member were to say this to you, how would you feel about it? Um, because a lot of times, uh, like the answer is, oh, I would be really honored that they told me, or I would actually find that that would be really valuable to know that that's what they were thinking. Sometimes the answer is going to be, yeah, that would be too much information from my boss. I should not share that. (laughs) Um, so that's a good quick test. Um, we talk in the book about how there's the, the formula of selective vulnerability, which I talked about, and then providing a path forward. So um, you always want to guide your team or your organization towards what you're going to do next and show that you know they should have confidence in you. You know, you thought through what's going to happen next. So as an example of this, like imagine you are working with a startup company and you have just not gotten a round of funding that you wanted to get. So um, one way to handle that would be to come in and say, I'm terrified. Okay, that's a real emotion. And while that might be helpful for your employees to hear that you're terrified, that doesn't engender a lot of confidence. So a different way you could say, you know, hey, I know that that was really hard. I'm feeling uh, frustrated too about this and I'm having a lot of emotions as well but here's what we're going to do in the next three to six months so we can get back on our feet so that we can get funding during the next pitch round or whatever it is so still expressing your emotion it's just you're doing it in a more selective way and you're couching it in and here's what's going to happen next and again you know coming back to what you were saying before about the thinking about your boss test if you were to hear the first version of that from your boss then you'd probably be terrified too, right? <laughs> and so you'd start thinking about what you might need to, <laughs> uh, which job sites you might need to go on at lunchtime and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk about a couple more of the rules then. Um, so, and we've kind of touched on a few bits of this already, but the emotional culture cascades from you. Yeah, so this is our chapter on culture. And the rule is about the fact that we think that culture is this very intangible thing that we have nothing to do with. And while it is true that a lot of the culture in an organization comes from the founder or the leadership team, we all actually can affect the culture. And we talk about 
how in any organization there's emotional norms. So these are the small things that um, you pick up on of what emotions it's okay to display and when, which are not okay to display. So as an example, it's totally fine in a trading floor to yell obscenities. <laughs> it's a perfectly acceptable way to show your emotion. In many other organizations, not. If you are a doctor, it's not going to be okay to cry when you have bad news. In other organizations, you know, may not be great, but it's acceptable to cry. Um, and so these are the, the things that we pick up on. And what's interesting is that emotion is contagious within an organization. So there's actually this really interesting study done that shows that if I interact with a colleague who is in a bad mood and I catch that bad mood, I may take it home to my husband and give him that bad mood. And then when he goes into work the next day, he can take that bad mood and affect his colleague. So that's how much it can spread. So we just all need to be really aware of um, how we are encouraging healthy emotional expression and norms. And it's not just leaders, but it's all of us. Mm. And also, it's not just the big set piece things, right? So there's a thing in the book where you talk about, um, I think it's, like the bit where you, you're talking about going to colleagues and just asking how their day is and inviting other people into conversations and like these little kind of tips and tricks of just stuff you can do just in the day to day, not necessarily a kind of big leadership talk or a big moment, but just what you do on that kind of everyday level that, that really can just set set the tone for people. Yeah, absolutely. We So they're called micro actions and these are the small things that we can all do. So you mentioned, so um, just asking people how their day is going. So like, sounds obvious, but I can't tell you how many offices I see where like in the kitchen when people are doing the same thing, they're not even making eye contact. Um, mm. Sharing coffee breaks and meals, super important. There's like that long primal tradition of eating together as social glue. Um, and I, I know in the States, we're really bad at that. We have, you know, lots of people have the sad desk lunch. <laughs> and I think Europe is actually much better about taking the time to eat together. Um, and then even in larger organizations or places where there's like customer service um, roles, there's lots of way to do this. Um, so we talk about the Ritz-Carlton, they train their staff it's called the 10 slash five way. And when you walk within 10 feet of someone, you're supposed to make eye contact and smile. And if you walk within five feet of someone, you're supposed to say hello, which I think we should just all adopt because that's sort of just being mm. a respectful human being to others. Yeah, that's really nice, isn't it? And, you know, you sort of, uh, you wonder about how, how those things can become like, they're such simple things. And, you know, when you're in a good, like, certainly I know for me, like when I'm in a good mood, I do that stuff very naturally. And when I'm not in a good mood, I don't do that at all. <laughs> you know, like you're just totally heads down. And, you know, some, sometimes that's sort of yeah. affected by your own day. But actually, it's just such a simple rule of thumb to to kind of snap us out of some of those more negative mindsets, I guess, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we finish, I thought it might be interesting to talk to you about your own journey with emotions at work. So obviously, the, the, there's a there's a great bit in the book as well where you talk about how when you and Liz first started collaborating together, you had different needs in terms of how you communicated and you had to express emotions. That was quite a difficult thing to do in the beginning. But I wondered, you know, maybe more generally, obviously doing this work, I often think that when I have written a book on productivity, that it's basically a giant rod for my own back because 
now everyone expects me to be on time for absolutely <laughs> everything and for like everything to be perfect and stuff. And I, and I wondered whether you have a similar rod for your own back uh, kind of narrative that you have just around everyone expects you to be the most super emotionally intelligent person in the room and, and everything else. And so what are the, what are the times where you struggle with this stuff and, and what have you learned? Yeah. Um, it's, it's so true. Um, and I'm somebody who is naturally an under motor. So when you talk in the book and there's a quiz that you can take on our website, you can see if you're an under motor or an over motor. So as an under motor, what that means is that I don't naturally express my emotions all the time. I'm more reserved and, neither of these are good or bad. It just means that I'm the person who you're going to come to when you need to be calmed down, when you need to be talked through something, I'm going to sit you down, give you good advice. I'm not the person you're going to come to when you want me to get really excited about something, just because I'm going to be like, that's great. And then go back to my normal, you know, work or whatever. And then, and then over motors are people who wear their emotions on their sleeve and much more naturally are constantly sharing their emotions. And, these are the people who you do you will go to if you're like, I have this great news and they're going to get excited about it for you. But they're less helpful um, when they get overwhelmed or when other people get overwhelmed because mm. they can have a hard time sort of calming down. Um, and so I think just knowing that about myself, knowing that, okay, so that's my natural tendency. So when do I need to push myself to get out of my comfort zone? And so some of that is... Um, with positive emotions, just getting those out and knowing that, like, just because I'm thinking that something's great doesn't mean that someone's going to know that I'm thinking that something's great. Um, and so an example of this is I've been working on my first impressions, because I think uh, a lot of times I meet new clients or new team members, and I can I've been told, I've gotten feedback that like, you are a very warm person and you have a very silly energy to you, but that's not how you came across when I first met you. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's interesting. So I have to work on that. And I think a lot of that is just because I'm more introverted and reserved. And so I'm sort of holding back due to maybe shyness or just sort of, I'm going to wait and see what this person is all about before I get vulnerable, but yeah. it's definitely something that I've had to work on. And then with negative emotions as well, I'm, I'm somebody who I like to be fairly self-reliant. And so when I get overwhelmed, it's usually more of a personal thing where I'm like, okay, I got to go figure this out. Or I'm, I need to like lay a week at 2am and think about this myself and no one else can help me. Um, and usually that's not true. And so I had a moment with some clients this fall where a really difficult time in the project and I came in one day after I'd been up late and I was like you know I care so much about this project and I'm doing everything that I possibly can um but I I need more help like I need you all to lean in a little bit more and the client shared with me at the end of the project that that was actually the turning point where they felt like they were my equal partner and my team member and that I nice. was really in it with them and so sometimes the thing that we think that we can't say because we need to be professional or, you know, we're the consultants and we can't admit that we need help. It's actually the thing that we need to say the most. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, and I think it, again, it comes back to that sort of archetype thing of, you know, they're the client and it, particularly in those kind of roles, it feels like everything the client says is the thing that's right. And you just have to go with, and actually, I, I think sometimes it's that creation of, healthy tension that that really works in those kind of relationships isn't it mm -hmm, absolutely nice i love that and going back to the thing about making good first impressions what did was there anything that you particularly 
tried to consciously do in trying to make those impressions more emotionally driven? Uh, like what were the, like what was in your head as you were, as, as you were kind of going to those first meetings once you kind of knew that about yourself? Yeah. So I, I, first of all, I read a book called first impressions, which I recommend it was written in the eighties, but it's still really helpful. It's the seminal book about this. And, um, so some tips that I got from that was thinking about my body language and I think, um, you know, it's something we hear all the time and yet I don't actually feel like I ever had actually changed anything about it. Um, especially like if you're in a social gathering, like happy hour, the book was talking about how there's people who you are naturally drawn to in those environments. And that's actually usually because they're standing in sort of an open way. They're not just closed off in a group. And they're the people who are sort of inviting you to come join them, you know, around a high top table or whatever. And I was like, oh, I know exactly what I do in those environments. And it's I go to the sidewall and like find one other person and just sort of like corner them. Um, And so like, how could I stand in the middle of a space and be more open with my body and Mm. be more inviting for people to join a conversation? Um, I think also um, the, the thing I realized was Okay, so I, if people think that I'm warm once they get to know me, I actually just have to speed up the getting to know me process. And that I, if I can be more vulnerable and share something silly about myself, like as soon as I can and push myself to do that, they're going to see that side of me faster. So just sort of speeding that up. Nice. I like that. It's a bit like that thing. There's that study about trust, isn't there, where... It's like once once you spent seven hours with somebody, somebody, then you'll trust them explicitly. So you know, just having that, and people talk about that with kind of how to build uh, customer interactions and get customer trust. It's like marketing has to sort of have that seven hour time period. I guess it's the same kind of thing, but like speeding it up. So just getting to the place where you can where you can do that do that reveal or 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 it be more personal and more personable in a kind of quick way. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think that you're an under motor or an over motor? I think, well, you know, as you, it's funny because as you were saying about the, the working the room and, and the sort of the person in the middle holding court and all that sort of thing, I was thinking I'm really bad at working the room. I'm probably similar to you. I think I'm an under motor. I'm generally fairly introverted. I can do the extrovert stuff, but it drains me. And so like for me, mm-hmm. I, like I, I really chimed with what you were just saying about, um, the the sort of you know you have one really deep and meaningful conversation at the sort of in the corner of the room <laughs> like that, that like that's totally how I do like so much <laughs> sort of networking and I like weirdly I sort of taken the opposite stance which is just to just to recognise that that working the room thing just doesn't interest me and I much prefer to have one deep conversation mm-hmm. with some with one person somewhere to the side and that actually how I like I think I so people often say to me, Oh, I, I think you're a good networker. And I say, no, I'm a shit networker, but I'm a really good connector. So mm. I can do, I can make the connections because then it's about people and ideas and building those relationships. But I, I love to do that on a kind of one-to-one or very small basis rather than on a kind of big work, the room kind of hand cards out uh, kind of cheesy basis, you know? Yeah. I, I, that's totally me too. And yeah, I don't think that one is bad or good. And I think that that absolutely is such a great um, call out because that is a, is a good way of networking. And I, I think introverts naturally do not like small talk and much prefer deep conversations, which is how you, you get to know someone. So 
I think I think you're doing the right thing. <laughs> For sure, yeah. And I, you know, and it took me a long time to realize that that was okay and I yeah. could own that. And um, I learned a lot from Dawn O'Connor, who's part of our uh, Think Productive Canada organization. Um, she is one of the most phenomenal connectors, at, as in she will. So, you know, she'll meet someone for an hour and, and, you know, chat to them and get to know them, but she'll kind of hold on to that person, that person's kind of soul in her memory almost for like years. And then she'll suddenly think of something and be like, oh, I should tell that person about that. And like, my memory isn't good enough to do that, but she's very good at just making those connections just on email or just on LinkedIn or, you know, just very subtly and quietly and in the background rather than needing to be in kind of big uh, sort of networky spaces to do that. But I think, you know, I think some of the best, you know, connectors for that very reason are introverts rather than, you know, we always think of that as being an, an extrovert's kind of natural habitat, but I think introverts can do that stuff really well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Cool. Um, we're just about out of time and I really want people to know um, how to follow you on Instagram as well as <laughs> just uh, tell us where they can get the book and everything else. So uh, just tell us how they can connect with you and also with Liz as well. So you to it's a co-authored book. So uh, just give us the, how people can connect with you. Sure. So we are on Instagram and Liz posts her wonderful illustrations, which I really think everyone will uh, relate to. And that is at Liz and Molly and Molly is M O L L I E. And we are on Twitter also at Liz and Molly. Our website is Liz and And the book again is no hard feelings, the secret power of embracing emotions at work. And it's available now on Amazon UK and Amazon US. Cool. And thanks so much for hanging out today. It's been great chatting to you and uh, good luck with the book. I hope it does really well. Thank you. This was so fun. So thanks again to Molly for being on the show and thank you for tuning in. It's really nice to be back in the regular flow of Beyond Busy every two weeks and particularly much easier to do that as I look out my window and it's a glorious, another glorious February sunny day as I'm recording this and um, going to try not to think about the climate change part of that too much but it is a lovely day outside. Um, and also thank you to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. If you're interested in workshops around productivity, we have a workshop on meetings. We have a workshop called Getting Your Inbox to Zero. And we have both very short and much longer full day sessions around the content from How to Be a Productivity Ninja. So if you're interested in that for your company, uh, you just need to go to thinkproductive.com and find out more there. And I'm doing a personal masterclass, as I was talking about at the beginning of, the, of this podcast, on the 20th of March in London. So you'll find details of that in the show notes here at getbeyondbusy.com. Also, just to say uh, that the next episode is going to be in two weeks' time, as per usual. It's going to be with Colette Hennigan. Colette is the co-author of Work Fuel, The Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition. I can't say that. The Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition. It feels like a real mouthful. Um, but anyway, yeah, ironically uh, enough. So she's going to be my guest in two weeks' time. And we will be introducing her to Beyond Busy and also simultaneously uh, that will also mark the first episode of Colette's Work Fuel podcast as well. So we're going to have a whole podcast around some of the ideas from the Work Fuel book. So I hope you will both tune in in two weeks time to hear Colette on this podcast and then also check out her future ones and subscribe to that as well. So that's coming up in two weeks time. 
until then i hope whatever you're doing wherever you are in the world uh you're making it a productive day and you're thinking about your work-life balance and how you define happiness and success and perhaps over the next couple of weeks couple of days uh thinking about emotions at work and reflecting on some of the stuff from a really good episode uh, there with molly so um see you in two weeks time with colette hennigan and until then take care bye for now This podcast is produced by Podient. To find out more, visit podientproductions.com.